It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That, of course, is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It is a great pleasure to welcome to the show Irene Gamel. She is a professor and a director at Modern Literature and Culture Research Center in the Department of English and Communication and Cultural MA and PhD in the program at Ryerson University in Toronto. She's also an adjunct member of the graduate program at uh, in art history at York University, which is my old school. So, uh, Irene, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, David. It's a great pleasure. So, listen, we're actually speaking with you about a project, I guess, here. It's just about to uh, uh, really get going for you. Um, a forthcoming book, I, I Can Only Paint the Story of Battlefield Painter Mary Ritter Hamilton, uh, and features uh, her letters and, and much of her art and a vast, vast uh, work that she has accomplished during the First World War. Um, so, once again, welcome to the show, and... Um, and congratulations. Thank you so much for that. And we are so excited because we are launching the uh, book tomorrow. Uh, the book I Can Only Paint. It's mm. been a 10-year project. So <laughs> it's finally there. And I'm excited. Now, I'm glad you mentioned it was a 10-year project. That was going to be one of my first questions because it <laughs> is massive. Oh, my goodness. For almost 400 pages. It is quite the study and it took a while to research it because it was an, an intricate project. Mm. Uh, we basically had available uh, a lot of her artwork, but not even all of her artwork. Mm. She was an extremely prolific painter and uh, brought home 320 works from the battlefields. Uh, but in order to write about a painter, we need more than just the work itself. It was also important to get at uh, Mary Writer Hamilton herself. Mm. And I think we had a big breakthrough um, when uh, when I received some of the original battlefield letters that had been uh, uh, donated to my center. And that really allowed me to look at these letters to immerse and establish uh, a timeline to know when Mary Writer Hamilton exactly painted which parts of the battlefields mm on this uh, uh, huge Western front. And so she focused on the works um, and on the, on the sites where Canadians had fought, including the Knee Ridge, including the Somme, uh, including Eve and the Eve salient. And so all of that was just very, very fascinating. And, and the, the story slowly emerged and also the story of her hardship during that time mm. and her incredible determination. So it, it was a, a fascinating story to tell, and I can't wait to hear what readers say about it. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, you know, the fact that, um, that she decided to, to want to pursue this, um, did you know much about that side of her when you, you started to look at, at, into her? I didn't know a lot other than the paintings themselves mm. because 
There was not a lot that had been researched. Uh, there had been sort of some initial uh, studies, but nothing very detailed. And uh, it was a big project that even took me to the battlefields of Europe in order I wanted to see for myself mm. what does it really look like there mm. at Ablain-Saint-Nazaire, at this northern foot of the Vimy Ridge. Uh, what did the Somme area look like? What does it li- look like today? And so I took these uh, paintings and compared, and some of those sites have been preserved, and it was quite fascinating to see that. But uh, it was really a journey of discovery for me. Mm. And as you say, a ten-year journey. Now, one of the things that come to me, you know, as you read about what she does uh, in terms of going from one battlefield to the next, almost just finishing one painting now there just the just the logistics the technical side of those things um you know what i'm saying like you've got a wet paint you've got a painting that that probably hasn't dried yet um or are there were there ways for her to to use certain kind of fast drying paints i just try trying to get my head around how she would how she would go about this and that's a fascinating thing as well, that she chose one of the most difficult mediums to yeah. uh, make her art. Uh, she painted in oil. She did not paint mm. in watercolors like mm. David Milne, for example. And some of the official war painters would uh, head into the battlefields, make sketches, and then prepare their actual paintings, very polished, highly mm. paintings mm. in their studios in Paris and London and so on. Whereas she was in the trenches, she painted in the trenches and then brought these works home and hung them in her Nissan hut. So she lived in a primitive metal Nissan hut. And uh, there is one photograph that I found absolutely fascinating where we see her inside this hut and you see how she has hung up all of these paintings for drying. Mm. And uh, it, 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 you see her, she's fallen asleep in, in that particular photograph. And uh, it was uh, made in Ecurie, also near the Vimy Ridge. And um, in terms of what she did, the other thing that is interesting in this context is uh, in some of the paintings uh, today, when you head to Libraries and Archives Canada, where uh, 227 of her paintings are held, you can see some of the paintings that have paper stuck on them. <laughs> in other words, she was trying to protect mm. them with paper and uh, as she transported some of the works and that is still visible today. So the mm. paintings themselves are fascinating artifacts that also tell us a lot about this extraordinary expedition into the battlefields. Right, and I and I'm not surprised to hear you say that. In fact, I would I would expect that perhaps some of them might have uh, smears or or marks from you know it's being jarred or or something getting in the way as 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 she's uh, going through the process of of trying to preserve them, like you were saying as well. Yeah, good point. What what do you think this says about her as a person? Because, you know, going into war, going into battle as a soldier, uh, facing an enemy, up against the, the kind of things that, that they were up against, uh, bullets flying at you, not knowing what's going on perhaps all the time, uh, that's challenging enough. 
But to put yourself there like someone like she did and want to capture that. Um, no. So in Mary Rita Hamilton's case, she painted after the war, yes. after the armistice. So she was in the battlefield trenches uh, from uh, April 1919 on. Mm. But what's important about that is uh, to know that the battlefields were still in very rough shape. Uh, there was yes. bar wires still in the way there were shells uh, that uh, yes. remained in 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 the in the battlefields themselves it was a dangerous territory and uh, the military had just begun to clean up these yes. battlefields as well as bury the dead so i think the traumatic experience for her was really being in this environment uh, where she was confronted with death on a daily yeah. basis, through <laughs> remains and so on, through pieces of uniforms and yeah. so on. So it was, it ended up being a very traumatizing experience for her. Yes, and I, I think that's where I was, I was going with that idea. Um, because it also mentioned how she might be running from one to the next, trying to capture that uh, before the cleanup started. So she really wanted to capture that. And I guess that's what I'm saying is that um, what do you think that says about her? Just, just the idea that she wanted to make sure she tried to capture that, that real, that, that real sense of, of, of the, uh, of the, of the images before anything could be touched and cleaned up, she, you know? I, I think she really saw herself as a witness of the destruction. And this was something that she wanted to see. She had applied to be a war artist um, as early as 1916, 1917, and uh, was rejected mm-hmm. multiple times uh, for uh, because she was a woman and uh, uh, she was not sent overseas and then was commissioned after the war. So. Mm. Already during the war, she was very determined. There is this sense, I want to see for myself. And of course, as we know, this was the era of fake news Mm. where uh, newspaper reports were even at best very dated. So when battles won were reported, uh, often by the time they made it to the newspaper, some sort of reversal had already taken place. And uh, all of that was reported with delay and so on. She wanted to see for herself what was going on, and then she saw the destruction, and she was profoundly touched Mm. by that destruction. So I think that's one aspect, this wanting to see for herself. Another motivation that was important for her was that she really wanted to pay tribute to those who had died. Mm. Uh, This was a war where the soldiers were sent in very much as cannon fodder. Mm. And to her, it was important to pay tribute to each and every life. And as quixotic as that is, she took it upon herself to travel from battlefield to battlefield to the most remote areas that even official war historians are not always that interested in. Mm. She wanted to see, she wanted to record that site so that it would create a kind of memorial for the soldiers, for those who had survived and uh, would would be a gift to to them. And um, 
in that sense, I think that the motivation was very much uh, to to think of others, to tell the truth about the war, and uh, also to bring some sort of solace to those who had died. Mm. Or to the families of those who had died, of course. Yeah. Now, as you mentioned, she's going into these areas where the military had not yet even always started to even clean up or bury the dead. Um, were these areas open that anyone could go to? What were the, what were the, uh, the protocols that she had to go through to, to even get there? That's a great question. The protocols were actually quite strict at the time in terms of uh, getting to the battlefields and being a painter there. In other words, recording uh, what what she saw. Uh, there were some uh, people who were allowed to the battlefield, such as uh, family members who were mm. looking for graves of loved ones or who wanted to uh, once their uh, the, the death of a son had been identified and the grave had been located, uh, they would be allowed to see this. So often you had uh, mothers, parents, uh, sisters, and so on uh, visit these battlefields. Uh, then later in 1919, uh, there was a kind of tourism starting to the battlefields. There were uh, organizations, there were guides who would take people around and would show them some of the uh, uh, some of the fields. So that was yet another. So at times you see these photographs of Eep, for example, where you, uh, you know, one day there, there is a, a, a total wasteland and the next day you see a group of people present. And often these were also former servicemen. Often they were uh, nurses before they traveled home. They wanted to see the destruction uh, for themselves. And that was, for example, the case also with uh, Edith Monture, the mm. uh, family member, your family member, mm. uh, who was a nurse. And uh, she, too, traveled uh, the battlefields. And then people were typically left kind of with a sense of that awful destruction, as Mary Reiter Hamilton was herself. Right. Now, what do we know about uh, her, her training, her, you know, the training that she brings to this? What can you tell us about that? In terms of her training, she came from a very simple background. Uh, she was born in, uh, in Ontario, uh, in Colross, Bruce County, and her parents uh, were farmers. So very simple background. They didn't have a lot of money. And uh, she, for her, painting was always something that she aspired to. She would save her pennies, as she says, to buy watercolors. And so she was very much uh, trained in the uh, do-it-yourself style at first. Uh, she pursued a traditional path in life, became married, but her husband died very young. And at the uh age of 26, she was a widow. And then after that, she became a professional artist. So for several years, she lived by doing what was then called a China painting. So a ceramic painting that uh, she sold and she taught watercolor painting to students. That's how she earned her money. Mm. And then in her early thirties, she was really determined to uh, start 
anew and she went to Europe, first to Berlin, then to Paris, and she uh, secured a, uh, a sort of more formal art education through private lessons in uh, some of the uh, studios uh, that were available. And uh, so she, I think we can see her determination to become an artist, to kind of leave everything behind, leave uh, a home behind, leave her students behind. She sold everything. And she went to Europe and she stayed in Europe uh, until 1911. So for a decade and then returned home and uh, actually made, had a profound impact with a Trans Canada tour uh, that she organized with the help of friends. She crossed the country starting in Toronto, uh, then Ottawa, Montreal, uh, Winnipeg, and um, Victoria, BC. And in all of these, she received just the highest accolades. So that's how she put herself on the map. And uh, what you find from this period is many newspapers, especially in the West, but also in Montreal and in Ottawa, praising her in the highest terms. And some of the superlatives were even that she was the first Canadian artist, and uh, which, of course, she wasn't. There were others there, including her teacher, Mary uh, Heister-Reed, uh, who had taught her a few lessons uh, in Toronto before she went to, uh, uh, to Europe and, uh, and so on. So she did have an interesting do-it-yourself education, but then also that formal education that you see, and that kind of also explains the... Um, it's sort of painterly quality of uh, her work uh, in terms of what uh, what she brought back from the battlefields. Mm. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa and anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. My guest here on Moment of Truth is Irene Gamble, and we are talking to her about uh, her her latest uh, project, uh, I Can Only Paint. It is a quite an extensive project, almost 400 pages um, of, of uh, offering, and it has to do with the, the uh, battlefield painter Mary Ritter Hamilton. And we've been talking to her... Um, when her husband, uh, when when Mary's husband passed away, and she was left as a widow, do you how much do you think that affected her uh, throwing herself into her work, or um, you know changed uh, perhaps a direction or or uh, determination in her life? I think it had a very profound effect on her. It was a traumatic experience. She would rom- romanticize her husband for the rest of her life and uh, uh, was also buried beside him mm. uh, when she died uh, in her 80s. So it, it was very, very clear that um, the experience of trauma, shock was an important one to her. And that was not the only thing. What I found in the course of research for uh, I Can Only Paint is that um, 
there were other deaths as well that were profoundly traumatic, notably three of her siblings who died early on. And uh, the other thing that I found interesting was that the later on she recalled, she says the first time uh, that I applied to be a war artist was in, uh, was, was in uh, 1915 or 1916, she says. And what I find interesting about those dates is that um, her mother died in September of 1915, and she had a very close relationship with her mother as well. And then for the rest of the war, she really just wanted to get overseas and wanted to uh, to document uh, the war through painting. And so I think the experience of loss, the experience of trauma was mm. a very important one to her. And I think it is reflected profoundly in her work because... Her work has a sense of empathy. I think what makes her work so important is that um, it is infused uh, with her own feelings, with her Mm. empathy. Uh, In some of the paintings, for example, she takes us down into the trench. When you look at some of the official war paintings, often dugouts and so forth, are painted from higher up looking down. In her case, there always seems to be this sense that she wants to get right in there, into the very uh, danger point, Mm -hmm. and take the viewer with her. That's what Mm -hmm. I found very fascinating uh, in her work. And I think it's the empathy with with the soldiers, the empathy with the soldiers who were right there and whose remains were often still in the body, in the in the uh, ground uh, when she was painting. Many of these soldiers have not yet been found, and many of the soldiers have not been found to this day. There are still bodies being recuperated from the battlefields, and I think she had a profound respect for life. She had a profound respect for those who had died or those who had um, lost uh, lost arms and legs. And mm-hmm. so she painted here on behalf of the uh, uh, war veterans and on behalf of the uh, um, War Amputee Club of British Columbia. Mm-hmm. And I think that is reflected in her work. And reflecting in her work what about reflecting in her her life post uh this you know uh, after she she'd come back and and brought in her 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 work back uh from the war and that i think that is a particularly tragic story because she was so determined uh to create this uh this collection and uh, she persisted for two and a half years without much of a break uh, that she spent uh, in in the battlefields. And uh, after that, she had a massive breakdown. And I think we can trace uh, through the letters the the post traumatic stress from which she was suffering so she brought that element home and so was a survivor of post traumatic stress she always picked herself up again perhaps that's the most remarkable about mary writer hamilton that she lived through it that she pulled herself through it and um when she was suffering from a, a breakdown uh, in paris at the time 
almost at the same time, she was organizing these large exhibitions because what was important to her was that her work could be seen and that once it had been seen in Europe, that she would take it back to Canada where it could be seen. And so her return to Canada was then quite delayed and it was late 1925 by the time that she returned to Canada and then again tried to show her work and she... um, succeeded, but she also had to be very economical with her energy. And I think there was always that danger that she might reawaken those demons. And so she was very, very careful, uh, even when she gave interviews later on. And uh, uh, in that sense, she wasn't really able to showcase her work as much as she would have liked to. Mm. Uh, But she was delighted when it was um, uh, accepted as a donation by uh, the um, Dominion Archives, what is today Library and Archives Canada in uh, Ottawa. Mm. And so she was quite delighted about that, that this collection would be safeguarded for future viewers. Now, throughout uh, the book, you you also insert, uh, for instance, maps. You insert other pictures uh, in and around from the time uh, of of uh, as we go through the story with, with you and and her. Um, what? Why did you feel it was important to insert these things? So, uh, it's it's always important, I think, especially when you uh, look at a battlefield mm. uh, to have a sense where exactly is it located? Mm. When did she actually go there? What was the motivation for going to this one over that one? And um, in that sense, it was important to me to find out what exactly was the trajectory. How did she manage this mm. just in terms of the logistics? Because sure. as an official war painter, official war painters were uh, received a salary. They also received their supplies paid, uh, uh, paid yeah. for. Mm-hmm. They received a driver. They received um, a helper to carry the, their materials. Right. He was Mary Writer Hamilton, who was without all of that. She had some help for the first six weeks. And uh, then she had to, she was on her own and she spent her own funds on uh financing this expedition. She also had a sporadic patron, female patron out in Victoria, Margaret Janet Hart, who uh, helped her a little bit. And uh, those were kind of the support systems for Mary Writer Hamilton on her expedition. And so showing where she was, showing how she operated was very important. And it was also important because her goal was uh, to paint these works uh, for the soldiers. She said at one point, it was for Canada I painted them. Mm. And um, she was a patriot in a way, but she could also see what the war had done. She could see the destruction. But she started out at the Vimy Ridge. She spent a lot of time at the Vimy Ridge and uh, painted uh, almost every place, uh, the northern foot, the, uh, the southern foot. And she was most of the time on foot because she 
didn't have a car available and taking any kind of transportation was very difficult at the time because uh, the infrastructure was destroyed. And mm. so the only way to get around was with a car. And um, that kind of created some of the difficulties. And that's what makes this expedition all the more fascinating but also mm-hmm. strenuous and then she talks about some of the most strenuous places such as the Somme where um there there, there was no um a place even to to overnight or and so at times she would head into these places and she would sleep in 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 a uh, in a dugout or so forth. So in in really grimy places, and uh, I think just the physical ordeal was something that she suffered through during the time. And uh, um, but it's very clear from the trajectory uh, that she looked at the places where Canadians had fought. She wanted that completed collection. Uh, so that she had covered most of these sites. And then every so often she was also very interested in others. So she wouldn't just paint the crosses of Canadians. What's fascinating to me is that she painted the crosses of uh, Australians uh, every so often or of French people and often juxtaposing these. So it wasn't really a straightforward national narrative that emerges from her work, it is a much more complex narrative about empathy and about humanity uh, during war. And she even painted German crosses. Mm. And uh, uh, I found that interesting because this was in 1919. So anti-German sentiment was still uh, very, very strong at that time. Mm. Do you feel that that she was satisfied with the with the works that she created and did she did she feel that she succeeded I think she did. I think at first uh it, it, she felt the pressure of turning her work into highly polished uh, larger works but later on she gave up on that and I think she realized this was the earth that she created. This mm. was part of her style. It was a kind of rough yet painterly style, but it was a style that she developed uh, by living in the trenches. And right. so it was very much her own style. That's what I found fascinating about it and still find fascinating today after looking at these works for such a long time. And these works are also emotionally charged mm. and comes through in almost each and every painting. She painted the destruction in front of her. She painted the crosses. And later on, she also painted the reconstruction effort. So we have some beautiful scenes, for example, Mm. of markets Mm. where you see the ruins in the background and then you see people in the foreground. You see these spots of color uh, where they are selling the first vegetables and so on. So we get a very interesting uh, account of reconstruction as well. Mm. And and how do you feel that she was uh, it was received how it was received and and do you feel that she was happy with its reception 
Uh, I think she was a very modest woman. She didn't ask for very much. Mm. Uh, at the same time, she wanted her work to be seen and she wanted her work to in some way benefit those who had suffered. So those were her goals. And I think she was tremendously happy that uh, the collection was safeguarded uh, by her donation to uh, to the to the Dominion archives, uh, where they are still today, and where they are, some of them are being restored and conserved, mm. and so forth, and so they are still available to others. Right. What's also fascinating is that she kept about one third of these paintings for herself, and she later donated them to her family. In her will, she describes that. Paintings are, and she has a long list of where the paintings are meant to go. And that created actually a fascinating journey in retrieving some of these remarkable paintings today, mm. in finding them, you know, one or the other, or even more in some of the private households where they are hanging on the walls today. Mm. And uh, so that created another interesting journey uh, in, this, uh, in this research project. Okay. Uh, Irene, we're almost out of time, but I want to ask you this. What is it that you hope that people will take away from, from this uh, book that you've put out? Uh, uh, you know, you, I can only paint the story of battlefield painter Mary Ritter Hamilton. What are you, what are you hoping people take away from it? I hope that they take away and, and the, the, the paintings themselves, which are which are quite fascinating, and then the story also of a 51-year-old woman who went to paint the battlefields on the Western mm. Front and who did so even though she was told she was not supposed to go. She yeah. insisted. She had to do this. She had to see for herself, and that's precisely what she did. She had her own vision. And uh, through that vision, through that um, dedication, through that development of her own style and living in the trenches, she brought back 320 uh, works in oil, pastel, chalk, and pencil. So I think that's pretty amazing. Yeah. And also how that journey affected her sure. uh, in the long run. And it's something that is available today. And it speaks to us today, I think, especially uh, during the era of COVID, when we look again at awful statistics of death and ask ourselves, well, how do we deal with this? How do we acknowledge some of this? And I think Mary Rita Hamilton helps provide an answer to that. All right. Irene, it's been fascinating speaking with you. Congratulations once again on, on this book, uh, you know, and, and all the best in the future with it. Thank you so much. And, of course, uh, the official launch date is December 10th, and uh, you have a publisher's launch date of December 17th as well. I think that's the official launch, but we are hoping for books already before that. Right, okay. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you once again, and thank you for coming on the show and sharing uh, this uh, and all your, the hard work and 10 years of work that you put into this. Thank you so much, David. Right. It's been wonderful talking with you. Okay, take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. And that's Irene Gamble. She's a professor and director at Modern Literature and Cultural Research Center in the Department of English and Communication and Culture uh, Program at Ryerson University. And she's also an adjunct member of the Graduate Program in Art History at York University. We've been talking to her about her book, I Can Only Paint the Story of Battlefield Painter Mary Ritter Hamilton. Official launch is December 10th. And uh, be sure to look for that. It's fascinating 
and it is almost 400 pages long. I guarantee you will not uh, be disappointed when you get this. That's uh, this part of the program. I want to thank you for listening as we do each and every day right here on Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And that, of course, is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM. And uh, listen on your device of choice, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. It is a pleasure to welcome to the show Karen Panizzi. She is an Associate Professor of Anthropology at Western University, as well as Frederica Guccini. And she is a PhD candidate in Sociocultural and Linguistic Anthropology, also at Western University. Uh, Welcome to the show, both of you. Thank Thank you. you. And we're talking today with you about an article that you, you co-authored in, in the, the conversation. And, and it's, it has a lot to do with names and in particular the pronunciation of names. But it's also interesting that your article takes it further, uh, especially these days where we are faced with things like uh, what are the proper pronouns to call people with. And so I was glad to see that you addressed that in the article as well as uh, how do you address the issue when you are confronted with someone's name and you're not sure how to pronounce it? Of course, uh, the best thing that, you know, I, I've, of course, been uh, taught to do, and that is to try and, and speak with the person ahead of time to, if you have a question about that, to, to say, how, how do you pronounce that name? And, uh, and I guess if you need to, to write that down in a, in a phonetic fa- uh, me- fashion so that you can then go back to that and, and help yourself remember how to pronounce it. Uh, Karen, uh, would you like to, to perhaps answer that one? Yeah, I think that's a great strategy, actually. That's you know usually what we recommend is just start by asking first. Um, and partly it has to do with the way you're asking. Mm. You know, that There's a lot to say about the how of doing it, right? Yes. So if you just ask, you know, how do you pronounce your name? And as you said, make a note, write it down, maybe practice it once or twice or something like that um, to make sure that it's right. Rather, but but still not, you know, not, not making a big deal about it, making a spectacle of it and, and making people feel awkward by, you know, making kind of comments and, um, or asking questions about it. What does it mean? Or where's that from? Or, mm. you know, those kind of things, just, just getting it right the same way you would do a phone number or an address or something. Mm-hmm. And of course, I guess we've all been in those situations where either we've been the person mispronouncing someone's name or on the receiving end of that. And, and there are, as you mentioned, there are levels of, of uncomfortableness in both of those situations for both the, the person uh, speaking as well as the person on the receiving end. Uh, like you said, someone could be embarrassed in the fact that they aren't able to pronounce it and they could uh, make light of the situation, try to make a joke out of it, uh, or, or try to make fun of the person themselves. And maybe it's all innocent, but it has ramifications when it's in, in, a, in a public uh, uh, situation. Yeah, for sure. It, the situation, the context makes all the difference, right? Is it just the two of you talking? Are you introducing the person in front of you know, a room full of people, um, and and again, this sort of how you how you do it, and if you know, making a joke, 
even if you're kind of criticizing yourself saying, oh, I have trouble with names or this one's hard for me to pronounce or something, um, it still makes the other person feel awkward that they're causing you trouble somehow. Mm-hmm. Frederica, the, the topic of the article is it, it starts with imagine. <laughs> imagine <laughs> you have to say an unfamiliar name. Oh, yeah, I don't have to imagine that. Believe me, I've been in those situations many, many times uh, mm-hmm. sitting behind this microphone and interviewing people. And it scares me to death. You know, you don't want to make a mistake with someone's name. It's their name. Uh, it's very important to them. Um, so I'm glad to see that you, you guys started it out that way. Um, what can you elaborate or, or share with us on that, that from that front? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think it's very um, normal to have that fear. Um, we all have certain intersocial fears, right? Um, and the name is a big part of that. It's part of introductions. The name has a big cultural and social importance for us. Um, it's kind of like an inst- extension of the person or a stand-in for the person. So it has a lot to do with identity and you don't want to disrespect a person mm. um, by getting it wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the best thing to do is to remember that this is normal for everyone. Um, no one can pronounce every single name uh, right off the bat. Um, you have to practice it, like Karen just said. Um, and there's nothing you can do to um, preemptively just like get rid of all those problems. You just need to know how to address them better. And so what are some of the things that, that people can do uh, to, to help them in that regard? Um, so first of all, I mean, we've already talked about this. Um, asking is always the best way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and verifying with the person. Um, you can also use certain... Uh, online tools. There are websites that um, give you pronunciations of names. You should be careful with those. Sometimes they're not exactly what the person is actually, um, like how the person actually pronounces their own name. Um, So whatever the internet gives you, uh, I'll give an example with my name. My name is Federica, but I actually use three pronunciations of this name. So in Italian, my name is Federica. In German, where I'm from, I'm from Germany, um, there my name is pronounced Federica, and now in Canada I use Federica. So if the internet gives you a pronunciation, it might not necessarily be the correct one, but though there are tools that you can use um, to verify before you meet the person, and then asking is always just the best thing to do. You know, sometimes there are situations where, as an announcer, for instance, um, that you aren't able to meet the person or speak with the person ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think one of those things that has really uh, changed a lot that has become more multicultural are sports. You know, we always see sports names and and there's always names in sports that are out there. And I have certainly gone to some of those those, uh, Google sites you're talking about to try and get pronunciations at times for people's names. And I think you're quite right. You, You can find a couple that are completely different or they're mm-hmm. completely lack of a better term anglophone ang- anglicized um which don't do any justice to the person's name at all so you do have to be careful with that yes um now what about name diversity you guys address that issue who would like to start about with that one well i can take that one sure. um that's something that was interesting to me from the very beginning of this project. So I was trying to see it from two sides. You know, one one side is, you know, people in their personal name and stories about their name and, you know, difficulties on both sides of, you know, people 
you know, saying their name or writing their name and then the, how the person feels about it and that kind of thing. But the other side of it was these institutional actors, you know, people who have to create databases, people who have to, um, you know, like a teacher with a list of names of, of students or, you know, salespeople who are meeting people and having to say their name all the time, or you're mentioning announcers. So this kind of more maybe work-based or task-based thing mm. where you're trying, you're faced with a diversity of names all the time. Um, and like we've said, you can't possibly, you know, get them all right off the bat. Um, and so what do you do? How do you manage that? How do you try to be accommodating? Um, and how do you solve kind of name problems in, in when you maybe don't even meet the people, but you're just dealing with the names as words, you know, like on a, mm. in, in a database. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I talked to a lot of different people and uh, about the kind of problems they face and then how do they deal with them and the strategies and what are some kind of best practices. Um, and so that was one other thing that we wanted to mention that in that article, we just gave a few kind of hints uh, so one of the things is just to recognize that there is such a diversity of names around the world from different, you know, cultures, different languages in some place like Canada, where you have people coming from all over the place or, or that, or that names tend to, um, persist through generations. So even though, you know, the people, the original immigrants might've been four generations ago, but mm. that family name continues, right. Or they pass on names, they name their children, um, with these, you know, from the original language, uh, so that's why there's so many different kinds of names. So one of the things to do is just if you're creating, say, a database of names, rather than dividing them into, you know, first name, last name with, you know, 10 characters each and everyone must have both of these fields filled in. Right. Uh, a better way might be just to use a single name field that says, you know, what is the name? And then the person can fill it in how how they want. Um and make sure you have enough characters, right? Like a long, you know, to accommodate long names. Uh, and also to accommodate more than one component. So some people have a double first name. Mm. Um, some people have a double last name. Some people have a middle name. Some people don't. Mm-hmm. Some people have four last names. Some people only have one name and no kind of first last idea. And so to be able to accommodate all of that, if you can just say one a single name field and not force people to divide it one way or the other, um, that goes a long way, actually. And then, you know, Sometimes people will say, well, but then we need to be able to, you know, sort them, alphabetize them, search Mm. them that way, right? And how do you search? So um, one strategy there could be alphabetizing by first name. So whatever is the first component that people have filled in, alphabetize it that way. And then it doesn't matter how many components there are or how long it is, you're always going to search from the you know, from the beginning. Mm, mm. Um, and this is actually not such a strange thing. I, I spend some time in Brazil and people always alphabetize names by first name there. Mm. Um, I think partly for that reason, because they have different lengths of names. You know, right. some people have two or three or four. Very interesting. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa and anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM and then listen on your device of choice, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. My guests here on Moment of Truth are Karen Panizzi, as well as Frederica Guccini, and they are, uh, they're both with Western University. Uh, Karen is an associate professor of anthropology, and uh, Frederica is a sociocultural and linguistic anthropologist uh, at, at Western as w- at University as well. Uh, ladies, um, linguistic anthropology, the study of names, what, what do you, I mean, it, you know, on the surface I understand that, but what does that really mean? 
Okay, do you want to try this one, Federica? <laughs> yes, sure. So anthropology um, is the study of uh, human beings and how we connect with one another. Mm. And linguistic anthropology is a branch of anthropology where we um, look at language and the impact it has on, um, on society. Um, and so names are a big part of that, uh, even though probably another sub branch of that, I guess. Um, and, um, there are a number of scholars that look at names. Uh, we can look at human names, uh, we can look at place names, um, and we can look at, uh, you know, terminology of what we call objects and things and concepts. Um, and yeah, so names are um, really important in linguistic anthropology um, because they are so closely connected to how we interact with one another. I mean, the first thing, if you think of social interactions as really introductions, right? Like that's the first thing you have to do when you meet another person. So names are really um, a topic for the, the everyday subjects, right? Mm. Um, so Names are everywhere and they often get kind of taken for granted. And that's the beauty of the study of names is like to, to go into the space of the taken for granted and look at, um, how, how it really isn't that mundane. Like we actually have to, um, do a lot of work when we, when we think about names and introducing mm. ourselves, introducing other people. Like I always get really nervous when I have to introduce someone else <laughs> mm-hmm. instead of myself because I know my, my own name, my own history very well, but <laughs> other people, you know, like you, you might get it wrong. Right. And so it actually isn't that, um, that like we can't take it for granted all the time because it really isn't. And we have to do a lot of work to get it right. Mm. What is one thing that st- stands out to you that, that really took you by surprise in the study and learning about names. Karen? Uh, so much. I mean, the greatest thing to me is just listening to these stories from people. Um, and I guess one thing I didn't really think about to begin with, but it becomes clear is that people have such, like the reaction to all of this is very personal. So whereas some people might be highly offended if you get their name wrong and they get angry or they get upset and it bothers them. And and another person just kind of laughs it off and doesn't care. Mm. Right. It doesn't bother them at all. Call me whatever you want. Just Mm. don't call me late for dinner. You know, this (laughs) kind of thing. Um, So, and I, I really try, I still haven't figured this out. Like exactly why are some people so Mm. um, connected to their names and other people are happy to change their name, take an alias, you know, change Mm -hmm. their name five times in their life. Um, So, there's a kind of, I think there's cultural things going on there, but there's also personality or personal right. individuality there. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that it's not so easy to pin down, I guess, is the thing that I, I like the most about it. Okay. Thank you. Frederica? Um, yes. For me, um, I think the study of names um, really hit close to home. Mm. Uh, living in Germany with a fully Italian name has always um <laughs> been a bit of a struggle. Mm. Um, and so when I started studying names in a, in an anthropological way in my master's, um, I wrote a thesis on, um, the non-Chinese names of Chinese international students. Mm. Um, that just was something that I could relate to. Like it wasn't something necessarily, um, like Chinese names obviously didn't really apply to my situations, uh, situation, but I was, um, I, I could very much relate to the things that um, the students that I interviewed mm. told me. Um, and so for me, like, it's always a bit of a personal aspect to it. Um, and I really like that. Um, and something that I've learned in the process is um, 
that I think we all tend to think about names in a way that's like, oh, this is a name from this language and this is a name from that language. And we kind of think of them as like these these entities, like right. this language is this language and this language is another language and the names are a part of that group. Mm. And um, I think what we forget in that process is that names can move. Right. So names are not necessarily connected to only one language. Right. And how we uh, uh, call people uh, using proper pronoun and those kind of things. That's something, of course, is becoming more and more uh, popular. How about that element of things? Uh, Karen, do you want to start with us on that a little bit? Yeah, so that's a problem if you're trying to you know, continue to use a name that the person is no longer using. And there are lots of different situations. So, so transition into, you know, like a gender transition mm. could be one example. Um, and that's, I think what the, the word dead naming refers to, mm-hmm. but you could also imagine a similar situation. You know, let's say somebody gets married and changes their name and then you continue to call them by their, mm. you know, their maiden name or, um, even if someone is, let's say, adopted, right, and they have, a, you know, they maybe they get a new name, um, so and are using an old name, or uh, just people sometimes just change their name for other reasons. Uh, you know, could be a stage name, like an actor or something. Mm, right. um, but if they, but people might legally change their name for different reasons, uh, or even if it's not a legal name change, but just they're assuming a different name, they're using right. a different name. Right. Uh, but to but to keep you know kind of going back and saying their real name or their you know their original name or uh, this kind of, it's a disrespect to who they are and who they're presenting themselves to be uh, to you at that moment. Right. right? And, and to kind of always revealing this thing or going back to it as if it's somehow more true and that you as the user of the previous name are somehow, uh, you know, you have the right, you know, you've got the power to do that um, to kind of expose them or, you know, mm maybe show that you have some secret information that other people don't have, mm. like it becomes a kind of power move. And that's what, that's what can be damaging. Like that's the right. problem with it, right. right. Is that you're, you're saying I have the power to name you and you, you know, or to expose this or to, you know, say how you should be known rather than the person themselves. Right. Uh, Frederica, I'm going to throw this out one out to you. It'll be the last question as we finish up here. Uh, in regard to what we were just talking about, that that whole idea uh, of, of of why this is important uh, and, and either belonging or exclusion and, and how that can make people uh, feel, you know, either belonging, like we just said, or feeling excluded from either conversation or a group or society. Oh, of course. Um, so... I think the main idea is that you want to do right by the person that you're meeting. Right. Mm. Um, and so, um, you want to include them, uh, and make them feel welcome. And, um, that goes for, um, really any social interaction, right? Like this could be, um, at a work meeting, uh, you don't want to exclude someone actively by ignoring them and their name, uh, or calling them a wrong name. Um, whether on purpose or by accident. Um, it could be just a quick social interaction between friends where you introduce someone and then you use the wrong name for them mm. or you forgot how to pronounce it, right? Um, like there's many ways you can make someone feel welcome uh, or unwelcome and the intention behind it is really what matters. Um, so it will definitely happen uh, that um, we will get it wrong eventually. Uh, like this 
probably has happened to everybody who's listening. Uh, this will happen probably uh, many more times. And the best way uh, to go about it when you've um, when you've done it wrong, when you've accidentally excluded someone um, through the use of their name, uh, is just to um, you know apologize, acknowledge it, move forward, and do better next time. Um, so just keep the intention in mind that I want to do better. I want to include them. I don't want to exclude anyone. Right. Well said. I think that's a good place for us to leave this conversation. It's been a real pleasure speaking to you both. And uh, I want to thank you for bringing this article to our attention, especially now these days. There seems to be so much, as you point out, about the multiculturalism that is happening, especially within uh, Canada. So uh, thank you both for joining us on the show. It was my pleasure. Thanks for giving us this opportunity. You bet. Yes, thank you so much. Okay, take care. And they are the voices of uh, Frederica Guccini, and she's a PhD candidate in sociocultural and linguistic anthropology at Western University. And Karen Penisi is an associate professor of anthropology also at Western University. It's been a pleasure having them on the show talking about names and how to correctly pronounce names and uh, by not doing so, how that affects things either, either in a social situation and or our feeling of being in- included or excluded. And that's this part of the show. We want to thank you for listening to Moment of Truth each and every day right here on Element FM. I am your host, David Moses, and we will see you back here again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM.